Thank you, Bonnie. Grab this real quick. Well, welcome again to Hope. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. It is, uh, yeah, there we go. Come on, we can celebrate. Uh, I mean, there's women's events, there's youth events, right? What do middle-aged men get? At least we get some Father's Day, yeah. Um, We are in the middle of a series on the fruits of the Spirit. We've been looking at this passage in Galatians 5. Actually, we looked at it from a few different angles for a few weeks, and then we were drilling in and taking each of the fruits of the Spirit and spending a week on them and just talking about what, what, what are these things that God says are supposed to actually be produced in us by God's Spirit. We're going to look at a few different passages this morning, but we're going to look at them kind of along the way. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we are grateful to be here. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your spirit who works in our hearts to actually produce things that we could never produce on our own. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would work through your word even now to produce fruit in us, that we might be the kind of people that you desire us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we get to talk about peace. What is peace? If I said this phrase, can't we all just get along? Anybody my age or older probably recognizes that phrase from Rodney King. Rodney King was the the victim of some pretty brutal police beatings, was also the spur of what started the 1992 uh, riots in L.A. I think something like 25 people died. It was a pretty terrible deal. King was a complicated individual. He really struggled through most of his life, actually kind of in and out of jail. He actually died on Father's Day in 2012. But that phrase that he is so uh, remembered by, that phrase that we all kind of remember, can't we all just get along, I think is a great kind of encapsulation of really what our hearts yearn for. It's peace. We really do all kind of ask that question. What does it mean for us to live in peace together? And more specifically, how is it achieved? When I was in in New York City a few weeks ago, uh, very close to where we were staying, in fact, walked by it almost every day, was a Unitarian Universalist church. And out there, the very front of the church, they had a sign that said, God optional community. God optional community. If you actually start digging on the Universal Unitarian Universalist Church website, that's a mouthful, you end up finding that they say very specifically, Unitarian Universalists are a group of people who are atheists or agnostics or theists or anything in between, all of the above, right? And interestingly enough, here's one of their, they have seven kind of core statements, here's one of them. The goal of world community with peace, it's one of their firm statements, is what they want is world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Now, that sounds awesome. Who wouldn't want that, right? But you put those two things together and you hear what they're saying is, actually, if we remove God from the conversation, we will have a better, a better chance of achieving community, peace, justice, those sort of things. Peace comes from removing God from the conversation. Isn't that what John Lennon sang? 
way back in the 60s, imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us. Imagine these things in order that we might imagine peace. His idea was that greater secularism would actually lead to greater peace. It just so happens that he wasn't right, because if you look back actually at the history of time since even Lenin sang those words, secularism has risen in our society for sure. But let me just ask you, are we a more peaceful, together society than we were 50 years ago? Probably most of you would say not so much. So how do you achieve peace? Well, we're first going to look at, we'll look at a couple things, really, two, two kind of major points in this sermon. The first is what the Bible says about peace. We're going to define it. What is peace according to the Bible? And secondly, how do you do it? How do you make it happen? How do you actually uh, see peace uh, really spread in our world? So let's look at the first one, the Bible's view of peace. And we get to go to a bunch of different places because this is great. We oftentimes think about peace in the Rodney King kind of way, right? Getting along, the absence of conflict. We normally think about peace uh, as it relates to conflict, and peace in our minds is often the absence of conflict, right? It's everybody just being okay with one another. But peace in the Bible actually has a much broader definition, especially in the Old Testament. The word we translate peace is the Hebrew word shalom, and shalom has a huge breadth of meaning in the Old Testament. Here's a few. First, it can mean wellness, health, or safety. Let me read to you a few passages and put them up on the screen here too. Genesis 37, 14. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. That idea of wellness, that's the word shalom. Or Genesis 43, 27. He inquired about their welfare. That's shalom as well. And said, is your father well? There it is again. And the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And in 2 Samuel eleven seven, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. That were doing and was going, that's shalom. So there's wellness, kind of okayness, health, safety. That's part of this concept of shalom. It also can mean, uh, have the connotation of fullness, fullness. Listen to these verses. Deuteronomy 25, 15, a full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. The full weight, the fairness, that's shalom. Or Ruth 2, 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full shalom reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So, shalom can also mean fullness. How about this one? Completeness. Shalom can mean that as well. Deuteronomy 27, 6, you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut, that's shalom, uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. So, that's full, uncut, uh, the way that it's um, meant to be there, right? Uncut stones. Second Chronicles 8, 16, this was accomplished Thus was accomplished all the work of Solomon from the day the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid until it was shalomed, until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed, shalomed. So that idea of fullness, completeness, wellness, wholeness, 
all encapsulates what this word shalom means in the Old Testament. In fact, a, a great statement has been made by one author that says what shalom is, it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's a great definition. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Or another way that you could say this is that shalom is the way things are supposed to be. Not just about the absence of conflict, but actually the presence of flourishing. Shalom is the way that things are supposed to be. You know, there's a concept of dissonance and consonance. If you're a, if you're a music lover, you know what I'm talking about. A, a dissonant chord or a dissonant melody are those melodies or chords that just, they just don't feel right. They kind of make you go, ugh, what was that, right? They're, they're notes that just kind of clash together, and they feel wrong. And the best musicians use dissonance beautifully. One of my favorite is Stevie Wonder who in his melodies has this incredible way of actually working through dissonant melodies and dissonant chords, and just at the time that you feel like, ah, I'm ready to bail out, he gives you this beautiful consonance, this harmony, this incredible melody that just makes so much sense and makes your soul just feel right. It's like walking through the woods and not really knowing where you are and then coming upon this clearing, and it's out in the open and the sun is shining and everything is right. That clearing is shalom. Or think about a movie or a book, right, where the really what is the essence of good narrative is that there's got to be conflict. There's got to be conflict. But, of course, the other essence of a good narrative is that that conflict has to resolve at some point. And so when you read a great mystery or you watch a whodunit, you're in the dissonance portion for about 90% of the movie or the book. But then at the end, everything just makes sense. It settles, it's right, it's complete, it's whole, it's the way that it's supposed to be. That is shalom. So if that's what the Bible says about what peace is, not only the absence of conflict, though it includes that, but really the presence of wholeness, of fullness, of flourishing, the way that things are supposed to be, how do we get it? How do we find shalom or peace in our world? Well, we have a couple of options. And really, the way of the world is very different than the way of Jesus. Because the way that the world has said that we find peace is through the negotiation of power such that we might find some sort of balance between us and thus create peace. You hear that? That is the way of the world. The way of the world is that peace is found by negotiating power. If, if you just do a Google search for the word peacemaker, I did it yesterday, I wonder what would come up. I typed in peacemaker. The first thing that came up was this bar in San Francisco that, by the way, looked like a super cool bar. But the second thing that came up was a missile. Almost everything after that had some sort of military or armament kind of connotation to it, right? That's pretty fascinating that the way that we think about peace is either we engage in conflict or we disengage from life in something like alcohol. It's pretty telling of the way that we think about peace in our society. Because the way that we're accustomed to searching for peace is through the negotiation of power. Sometimes that's physical power. Sometimes it's muscles and guns, and force 
Sometimes it's cultural power. I have been listening to this fascinating podcast that a friend of mine turned me on to called Wind of Change, and it is about the song Wind of Change by the band Scorpions, German 1980s, kind of like soft metal band. If you're my age, you know the Scorpions, okay? Yeah, there we go. Amen. Okay, and this song, probably their most famous song, actually their most famous song worldwide, this song is like has, has sold millions and millions and millions of copies, and it's called Wind of Change, and it's about actually the fall of communism. It's about this idea. It came out in 1990, and it's about this idea that, uh, that the world was about to change. And the whole idea of the podcast is built on this rumor that that song was written by the CIA. And I'm only halfway through the podcast, so if you've listened to it and you know the answer, do not tell me. But it's plausible, right? Because the CIA actually was doing this kind of thing all throughout the Cold War, sending musicians in to kind of, you know, promote Western ideology through music or through art or through literature, hoping that that Western ideology would kind of seep into the East and change things so that through the negotiation of cultural power, we could at least find peace if not actually overthrow our enemies. That's the way of the world. We look for peace through negotiating power. Friends, that is not the way of Jesus. It is not the way of the gospel. It is not the way that the Bible says that peace is found. In fact, the way that the Bible says that peace is found is so 100% the opposite of that that it might even surprise us. Because the Bible says that peace is achieved through sacrifice, through humility, through the giving away of power, through the laying down of power, even of life. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. The first is John chapter 20. Listen to this. This is John 20, verse 19. This is just after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is now appearing to His disciples for the first time, and this is what John tells us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, and He stood among them, and He said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That is amazing. The literal first word out of Jesus' mouth when he sees his disciples is peace. What he wants them to know after he has been raised, the first time that he sees these, these men, who, by the way, he's been with for three years, and he's been telling them over and over, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised. And all of them were like, okay, whatever, Jesus, right? And then after Jesus does exactly what he says he's going to do, they all, in fear, scatter. And they're all hiding away in some room together. The doors are locked because they're afraid. And Jesus shows up, and Jesus says, you idiots, I told you this was going to happen. How could you run away and leave me and hide? You're a bunch of cowards. No, that's not what he says, is it? He says, peace. The very first proclamation from Jesus is not a command. It's not a denouncement. It's a blessing. 
peace be with you. And then what does Jesus say directly after that? John tells us that after he has proclaimed peace, he shows them his hands and his side. There's a reason why John connects those things together. You cannot have peace without a wounded Jesus. Okay, let me say that again. There can be no peace without a wounded Jesus. See, the way that we find peace with God, it does not work according to the world's equation. You cannot achieve peace with God through a negotiation of power. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's going to be a hard one to find some balance in, isn't it? I cannot negotiate my way into peace with God. And this is what makes actually the gospel so different than every religious proclamation since the beginning of time, right? Is that every other religion, every other ideology is built on what you do. Here's the stuff you do in order to be made right with God. You negotiate power in some way. I actually raise my level of ability up where it matches God's level of acceptance, and then we can find peace. But friends, that does not work. Maybe you've tried it, and you know what I'm talking about. What the gospel says is radically different, is that instead of being on a, based on a system of do, it's actually based on what's been done, is that Jesus, the one who shows them his hands and his side, he says, here is how peace is achieved. It's achieved through my suffering, through my death, through my atoning sacrifice, through my resurrection. This is how you receive peace with God. It is actually through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. A radically different message than the way that we understand it in our culture. And also something that radically changes the way that we interact with others, doesn't it? I mean, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what he says starting in verse 13. He's writing to a young church in Ephesus, a church that's full of both Jews and Gentiles, people who, who, who before this time and probably during this time did not know what to do with each other, so much so that they actually both thought that there probably was no salvation for the other. And this is what Paul says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and preached peace to you, those who were near, that's Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. Friends, first of all, most of us, maybe every single one of us, 
uh, are Gentiles by birth. We should first of all rejoice in those wonderful words that we have gent- as Gentiles have been brought into the family of God, that we've been treated as sons and daughters, that we have been engrafted into God's people. That is not by any sort of power negotiation on our behalf. That is only by God's grace. But it also changes then the way that we deal with one another, doesn't it? It changes the way that different kinds of people interact in the church. It changes the way that we think about people in the church who have a different culture than we do, or are a different age, or have a different life, or have different values in some ways. It changes the way that we interact with each other. And so how do people, especially people who are different from one another, how do they find peace together? How do we all just get along? Well, it's through sacrifice. It's through actually not only clinging to the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, but actually beginning to walk that cruciform, sacrificial path ourselves. It's by laying our lives down for one another. That's how peace is achieved. I'm going to do something that we don't normally do right now and actually pause just for a second and and give you a little time to just chew on this. I just want to ask this question and let you consider it for a moment. How will you find peace? How will you actually promote peace in your life, in our church's life together, and even in our city? How are we going to find that? Spend a few moments considering those things, and then we'll come back and finish up here in just a minute. I'd encourage you, if you're one who likes to write things down, write down that question up there. Consider it the rest of the day. Put you on it this week. It's a helpful, beneficial thing to ponder. I just uh, got back a couple of days ago, spent this week in Memphis, Tennessee, at our denomination's yearly meeting, our General Assembly. It's where pastors and elders from all across the country get together, and we have not only fun times together, but a big uh, multi-day business meeting. Now, let me just say, if, uh, if an alien had dropped into planet Earth and had landed at PCA General Assembly, that alien may not want to visit the rest of humanity. Uh, it is a weird place in a lot of ways, okay? The way that we actually do business is unlike anything most of you have ever seen. There's a very particular kind of way that we ask questions and we talk about stuff, a very particular way that we get our business done. And if you've never seen it, it's a little odd. That's fine. What's actually unfortunate, though, is that oftentimes that odd way that we do things 
can look more like the world's way of finding peace than it can like the Bible's. It's that very oftentimes, these pastors and elders, people who should know better, people who know the Bible, actually get together and they begin to negotiate power. They begin to try and find peace by, by developing factions, by gathering their own arguments together and, and, and getting them ready so that they might use them as bludgeons against people who may disagree. We're guilty of it as well. I want to read you, though, this email that was sent by a, a, a friend, a man in our denomination, actually not even somebody I know very well. I'm on a, an email kind of list chain, and he sends out these emails every now and then, and I actually just read it after having gotten back from GA, cleaning out my email inbox, and he had sent it before, and I want you to hear the words that he says before GA. So here we go. Tomorrow begins General Assembly. We will fight it out on the floor over multiple matters. At times, the rhetoric will be intense. But don't allow factions to strangle the affection of Christ in you. In person, everyone you encounter is just as human as you are, with all the needs associated with it. So let this liberate your expectations. Let it free you to embrace those you might disagree with and reconcile with those that you may have fought with. Let it enable you to love those who may just be thrilled that you cared enough to notice them. Here is the beauty of it all. In Jesus, it is never too late to reconcile, never so intense that we can't love, and we are never under more pressure than God's grace can overcome in our dealings with one another. Jesus proved all this at the cross, and we get to live it out every day. Friends, those who have been transformed by the sacrificial peace of Jesus, actually begin to live out that sacrificial peace with one another. We get to live it out every day. Amen? Let's pray. Good Father of peace, Prince of peace, Jesus, King of peace, Creator of peace, Lord, the one who has made things the way that they are supposed to be and is set himself on a mission to make them once again the way that they should be. We pray that you would work your peace in our hearts, that we might find ourselves at peace with you through Jesus' sacrifice, and that that might actually work itself out into us sacrificing for others. Lord, teach us how to resist the strong temptation to try and find peace through negotiating power, Teach us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to pursue peace through sacrifice as you have done with us. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.